Hey, let me give a <clears throat> kind of a word of explanation as to how today's going to go. It's going to be a little bit different, and so I don't want you to be confused. I know that can happen uh, easily, uh, easier for some of you, and that's a subject for another time. But uh, uh, it, as, as we look at this passage uh, today, and we're in 27 through 37 in Matthew 5, it really breaks into kind of three different movements. And so you have uh, a word on uh, adultery and lust. You have a word on kind of divorce. And then you have a word on oaths. And so telling the truth. And so it really seems to be kind of three distinct movements. And we thought one of the best ways to communicate this well is by having uh, different people come up and and to share from that passage, because that's what we're going to do. And so I'm going to begin, and I'm going to talk to us uh, about lust, and then Justin's going to come up, and he's going to share with us about divorce, and then Jesse's going to wrap up our time, and he is going to share about oaths. And let me just, like, calm you right now, okay? We each don't get 30 minutes. <laughs> we get 45. And so, <laughs> no, it's still going to take a, a, around the same amount of time, but I just think this would be a more helpful way for us to recognize these are distinct and different things, but they're building towards this one thing. Hey, let me, let me pray for us, and then I will take us through the first movement of this passage. Father, we come to you this morning, and God, we just want just to confess that as we encounter your word, we encounter areas, avenues, modes of thought, ways of action that are completely contrary to what we read, what we see, what we hear. We are engaged in willful disobedience against a holy and righteous God. Father, we confess that to you. We need your cleansing. We need your healing. We need your equipping grace to come alongside us, to strengthen us, to call us towards holiness in our thoughts and in our actions. Father, I pray that would be the prayer of the men and women in this room, that they would be humbled before a high and mighty God that they would indeed hunger and thirst for righteousness as we studied a few weeks ago in the Beatitudes. Father, I just I thank you that, that even in the midst of despair through the, the way that Harvey has ravaged South Texas over to Louisiana, that your body, the church, is just doing an amazing job ministering to hurting people thousands upon thousands of people hearing the gospel, having their homes worked on, having items donated to them, coming from churches, stemming from an overflow of the gospel, welling up inside of them. So God, I thank you for that opportunity and pray that we would steward well the opportunities you place before us to be impactful with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, too, we pray for those in Florida who are already suffering lost, those who have suffered lost from the many storms that have kind of ravaged the south into the Caribbean. Father, we see strife, we see famine, we see wars the world over, not just in our own little hemisphere, not just within our own little sphere of impact. So, God, our prayer is that you would make your hand to be felt, that you would help your word to be known. 
you would raise up men and women from this place and from other churches across this country and the world to go with the saving hope of Jesus Christ to people who so desperately need to hear it. That they would extend the gospel of compassion even as they're meeting needs. Bringing water, bringing food, bringing peace, bringing relief. And I thank you that your gospel has called us to go. Not just to give, not just to pray, but it has called us to go. And you have placed us here in Greenville, Texas, and have us going here, and have us going the world over. So help us to be faithful in that. Father, we pray for the other churches of our community that they would do well in stewarding the responsibilities you have given them in discharging the gospel, building up their people, challenging them to walk in, in holiness. And God, I pray that you would help us to work well together with one another. It's not always easy to work well together, but we are one body, not many bodies. We are the body of Christ, and we do that together. So I pray that you would help us to do that well. Be quick to forgive one another, quick to extend grace to one another. So Father, we pray for pastors, we pray for churches, that they might be strong and that they might display the gospel boldly and compassionately. I pray for our time this morning as we meet here that help our hearts to be tender before you and help our minds to be ready to respond. I pray for the ministry of your Holy Spirit in this place as it encounters hurting people, as we pull back kind of these scabs of life and expose the festering underbelly of our sin, that you would meet us with the salve of the gospel through the application of your Holy Spirit. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Jesus opened up this, this somewhat lengthy section Back in verse 17 of chapter 5, and he said, Do not think I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And then over this next uh, weeks that we have, he shows us all the various ways that he didn't come to just take the law and just set it aside and say, Remember this, let's just set it over here for now, but do this instead. Instead, Jesus' role, his mission, was this fulfillment of the gospel. And so what he did in this was he shows where the law was always pointed, where it was always directed. He's showing the end, and in some sense, he is also declaring that it was his specific ministry to more fully execute the law. And so when we recognize this, Jesus is moving through and systematically also destroying this, these kind of strongholds in our hearts of what is the minimum that I can do and be okay with God. What is the minimum I can do, I can give, I can say, or I can serve, and God's just going to be okay with it. And I hope you have been um, suffering alongside me as God is just kind of systematically destroying the strongholds in my heart. Now let's begin with, with what it is a difficult topic. And let me just go ahead and say, for those of you who have kids in the room, man, they are aware of, of some of this, and some of you haven't had conversations with your kids you should have had. For that, I'm sorry. I'm sorry you haven't had these conversations with your kids. If you need resources from us to help you have difficult conversations with them, we want to supply those things for you. We want to walk alongside mom and dad. But in like single digits of age, your kids are already exposed to untold horrors visually. 
They have cell phones or friends have cell phones. They've watched TV shows. If you think you're keeping your kids safe and secure and pure because you have them enrolled in a Christian school and they have all Christian friends and you think that they're going to emerge like out of high school and just like glowing with the Shekinah glory of God and, and basking in purity and only ever choosing to wear white and they're never going to sin, let me just go ahead and ruin the surprise for you. Not going to happen. I think we as parents need to be competing against the world in some sense for the hearts of our kids and making decisions to help them stay pure. Homeschool, Christian school, public school, they're going to encounter these things. And likely they already have. As moms and dads and grandpas and grandmas and friends and, and just older people that for whatever reason kids come to and talk to us, we want to be able to respond to them positively, right? Not just slap them around and say, why are you looking at this? This is awful. We want to instruct and tune their hearts to the gospel of Jesus Christ. They live in a fallen, depraved, and sinful world, and sin is no respecter of age, okay? So we're going to be delicate this morning, more delicate than we have been in the past when we address pornography and other issues, but I just want you to know that. Jesus begins, he says, you've heard it said, verse 27 of chapter 5, you shall not commit adultery, so he comes into this, and he is quoting here uh, from the Ten Commandments, Exodus twenty fourteen. And he says, you know this. You shouldn't commit adultery. Guy in the back says, ah, can you say that again? He says, yeah, you shall not commit adultery. And so how would they have understood? How would they have known that? How would they have received that? This is what they hear from this. This is what they know from this. Don't sleep with another man's wife. Don't do it. But what if she, no, don't do it. Don't sleep with another man's wife. But what if she, no, 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 no exception, no exception, no room for margin in this. Don't sleep with another man's wife. It's clear, right? They got this and they're like, man, I thought like, in light of what he'd said before, I thought this was going to be hard, but, but I, I'm okay. I'm not sleeping with another man's wife. So Jesus comes back. He says, but I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And they go, dadgum. That <laughs> Jesus don't pull no punches. There's always the redneck in the back. All right? Shut up, man. He heard you. He's looking at us now. So we recognize this first thing is just kind of the external. Don't, don't have sex with another man's wife. Don't commit adultery. And then he turns around and he drives right at the heart of the matter. And effectively he says this, you never go out and engage in adultery. You never go out and sleep with just some random person without already first entertaining it in your mind. Already first entertaining it in your mind. And so that's why he gives us in this such a pointed rebuke. That anytime we look at a woman with lustful intent, we commit adultery in our hearts. Let me just go ahead and say this. Having a holistic sexual ethic is not just for everybody who lives a lifestyle you're against. Okay? Do you understand this? So a couple of weeks ago, this thing called the Nashville Statement comes out. And there's just all kinds of backlash to it. And if you don't know what it is, you can Google it later. There's all kinds of backlash to it. It's this evangelical statement about just kind of orthodox responses and positions towards sexuality. And there's all kinds of backlash to it. It's always 
easier to look out there, to look at people you disagree with and say the homosexuals are wrong, the people with uh, gender identity issues are wrong, these people that engage in polyamorous relationships, and so they're in sexual relationships with multiple people, they're wrong. It's always easier to cast our eyes out there and to find problems and sin in other people. It is much more difficult, but it seems to be the application that Jesus is making to turn our eyes in this instance specifically inward. Inward. So Jesus says, don't have sex with another man's wife. I'm not doing that, he is. I'm not doing that, she is. I'm not doing that, they are. But what Jesus says in this is evaluate your heart. He calls us to a holistic sexual ethic. And it begins in some sense with our imagination. We recognize that imagination precedes action. So look at the scenario that Jesus casts here. He says, everyone who looks at a woman, Anybody in here look around this room and not see any women? Raise your hand if, that, if this is you. Put your hand down. I see you in my peripheral. <laughs> so we recognize that we, all of us, see members of the opposite sex, right? None of us are blind to gender. Man, I'm gender blind. I just, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm gender blind. It's like androgynous everywhere I go. I'm gender blind. No, you're not. Don't be stupid. So we recognize we all see people of the opposite sex, and so that's, that's not the issue. And we can admire people of the opposite sex. I, for one, would tell you Joel Bench is a handsome man. He's a, he's a, what? Who said who? Joel, come on now. He's a handsome man. My wife is an attractive woman, right? Nobody responds, all right. <laughs> Joel got lots of chatter. My wife gets no love. Love you, darling. And so we recognize this, like we're not blind to this. We're not like everybody's just wearing like sackcloth and ashes and they all have cardboard boxes. I can't see contours. I can't see contours. What does he say? It's the intent with which we look at them. It's the intent. So we go out and we see a member of the opposite sex. We see a member of the same sex, if this is something you struggle with. And you see this person and a thought begins to pop up in your mind. And you direct your attention back. And you look at them. And in some sense, what you're doing, whether it is actually undressing them with your mind or delighting in their physical appearance, pastors saying, man, God has made a beautiful person there and moving on. If you move to delight in them, you are already engaging in adultery in your heart. And this is difficult. This is incredibly difficult. Now, Jesus' words here are so incredibly clear. He doesn't just say you're headed down the path to commit adultery, but the way he shifts this tense, when we are gazing at this person with lustful intent in our hearts, we are already guilty. Already guilty. So what is the corrective to this? The corrective, and Jesus is going to get to this, the first thing is, man, to take it seriously. Pornography, lust, what you take in visually, it affects you. 
This is something our secular culture gets. They describe it and they write about it in terms of male impotence. But this is something they get. But do we care? Do we care? Are we a people who actually care what our eyes see and how we process it? How we think about it? One of the first correctives that I think is helpful is that just in terms of kind of this, what our imagination, what are we thinking about, what are we focusing on? The Apostle Paul gives us this wonderful corrective in Philippians 4.8. He says, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. If there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. If your temptation and your proclivity, the direction that you lean in, is to leave your mind in the gutter thinking about delighting in sexually, physically, someone else, stop. It's a simple word, but this is what he calls us to. Stop. Jesus wants us to recognize how incredibly difficult and how incredibly important the application of this is. So look what he gives us in 29 and 30. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of the members than your whole body and be thrown into hell. Verse 30, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. For it's better to lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. So Jesus looks at it and he recognizes, man, you got two hands, you got two eyes. So Jesus says, look, if your eye is causing you to sin, this is what you do and just toss this mother out. If your hand is the object of your sinfulness, cut it off, throw it away. Now, second, third century, there's this guy named Origen, who's one of the church fathers. Origen struggled with lust. And so one of the things he did to help himself out, and just in case you like zone out in a second, I'm not recommending this. <laughs> he would get naked and roll in thorns. So have a lustful thought, get naked, roll in thorns. Didn't help. So he says, I'm going to Right, we're going to have thorn bushes. And so he said, I'm going to take this up a notch. And so he goes out and castrates himself. And it didn't fix it. There's not enough removing your eyes or removing your hands to fix an issue of the heart. Jesus says, the locus, the place of adultery, has taken place within the heart. Jesus changes hearts. We can do things. Man, you're viewing pornography on your phone or your computer. What is holiness worth to you? What is holiness worth to you? Are you allowing other people to view your history? Are you viewing things in an open place or in a closed place? Can other people see you while you're engaged in this? Do you have brothers and sisters asking you hard questions, difficult questions, and just coming up to you and say, did you view pornography today? Did you have any thoughts in your mind towards another individual which are not glorifying and edifying to God? I can tell you, if you're a dad of teenage boys, you need to ask your kids this question on a regular basis. Where's your thought life? What are you viewing? What are you seeing? And how are you responding to it? God wants us to be a pure and holy people. Matthew 5, 8 said, the pure in heart will see God. Lust, delighting and desiring someone else, 
sexually is not compatible with the pure in heart. So Jesus comes to us and he says in this, we need to push back on this and those things that are leading you to sin cut out of your life. So maybe you look at this and you say, man, I am absolutely addicted to pornography. I absolutely uh, look at these things, I view these things, or I go on people's Instagram or Facebook or whatever it is, whatever ways you're taking this stuff in and you feel like you're just too far gone. Let me remind you of two verses. 1 John 1.8 tells us that all of us have sin. He says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Friend, the sin that you have in your life is not unique to you. Other people struggle as well. Seek help, get help. You have brothers and sisters in this church who would delight to walk alongside you and to help you come up out of this. And then in 1.9, Jesus sets us all free. He says, if we, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And not just to forgive you, but look at this next bit, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Everything you see, everything you may think, everything you've done can be made clean by the blood of Jesus. Let me read this next two verses of scripture as Justin prepares to come out. He says, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. All right, man. Thanks, Matt. Hey, uh, here's the deal. Man, we're going to talk about divorce. And that's not an easy topic to talk about. You know, in the culture that we live in today, divorce has basically come so common that we actually think it's normal. But divorce is not normal at all. Man, it's, it's actually devastating. Man, uh, I thought about every time I referred to my wife, Shannon, I would refer to her as my first wife, you know, uh, which is true. Uh, but I thought maybe I would do that to kind of have some more credibility on the subject. But she said, don't do that. All right. So I'm, I'm not going to do that. All right. Uh, but here's the thing, man, when we talk about divorce, I can hit you with stat after stat about how prevalent uh, divorce is in our culture. And uh, man, I could also hit you with some stats about how prevalent it is uh, in our church. Man, uh, they look pretty similar. Man, some of you would hear those stats and y'all would say, uh, Justin, man, I hear you, but I don't need any stats because I know the pain. Man, I don't need to hear the stats because, man, I've lived it out and, man, I still feel the pain and, man, I get that. See, I, I've never been divorced, but, man, I'm a product of one. Man, I still remember being 10 years old, five days before my birthday. Man, uh, my parents called myself and my brother into a room that we shared and, and they looked us in our eyes and they said, man, we, we can't make this work anymore. Man, we're, we're going to get a divorce. Man, I remember, uh, you know, feeling like, man, the, the oxygen just got sucked out of the room. Man, I, I remember feeling like, 
you know, the lights just got cut off in, in my heart, man. Some of y'all, y'all know what that's like, man. Y'all been there. Uh, man, I remember feeling like the bubble of safety that we call a home, you know, like that we could go to and feel safe. Like, man, there's dangers all around the world, but we could go to this place and, and we, would, we would be different. And, and some of y'all know what I'm talking about because for me, that place of safety Man, I saw it kind of explode. Man, I saw how suddenly, you know, being home didn't feel like a home anymore. Man, I, I remember days like, you know, we're fortunate. Like, we didn't have to go through, you know, some extreme custody battles. Man, my, my brother and I, we ended up moving in with my father and, and my sisters moved in with my mother. They stayed with her. But, man, I remember being 12 years old and having the weight of making the decision of who you would want to live with. That's tough. Man, I remember my mom, uh, you know, her single income being so minimal that my sisters qualified for free and reduced lunch. Man, I remember my dad uh, telling us he was going to get remarried, and uh, he was going to get remarried to somebody who had the same first name, middle name, and now the same last name. Man, that's kind of confusing <laughs> for a lot of people, but well played by him, all right? Uh, man. <laughs> And anybody who understands divorce, may you understand that holidays are so difficult. Man, where are you going to go? Man, how are you going to make it work? Um, man, my wife can empathize because she married somebody who, whose family is structured like that. And, man, holidays are busy for us. There's a lot of them going on. And, uh, man, I'm going to tell you. Man, being married, married, being married is so hard, but man, for many people today in our culture, divorce has become this common solution. And man, I, I wanna remind the church that, man, divorce isn't a solution to problems. Man, in fact, it's an exchange of problems. And for so many times, it's an exchange of much greater problems. And so, man, as we continue to talk about this, man, the, uh, as Christ you know, uh, addresses this on the Sermon of the Mount, Man, he speaks to this issue. And for some of y'all, man, this is y'all story, and I want to speak into that. And for some of y'all, this is not, and we praise the Lord for that, but I want you to understand that it's the story of others. And, uh, man, we want to address that so we can understand how to minister to each other. Man, as we talk, man, my goal is not to rekindle the flame of resentment towards maybe your parents or towards uh, your ex-spouse. Man, uh, I bring this topic up because Christ brings it up. And my hope and result of this morning in our conversation is that you can experience freedom from the past, you know, healing from the present, and hope for the future. And so like Matt just read in verse 31, red letters, Christ's words, many says, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. And man, when Christ says this, man, it's a direct reference to Deuteronomy 24, and, uh, man, if you go there and you read those first four verses of Deuteronomy, man, you got to understand that there's a reality here that Deuteronomy 24 does not initiate, it does not condone, it does not promote divorce. Man, it does not even create the topic. Basically, all Deuteronomy 24 is saying is, man, it regulates it. Man, it assumes that divorce exists and it gives people these regulations to live by. And so if you read Deuteronomy 24, there's two things that come very clear and the, they rise to the surface. And the first thing is it demands that a man write a certificate of divorce and put it in his wife's hand. 
See, number one, it says, man, if you're a man and you're going to do this, you need to write a certificate because in other cultures, they would just take that wife and they would kick her to the curb. Man, she would be kicked out of the house. She would be destitute. Man, she couldn't get a job. All the land was owned by men. And you could make her a beggar or a prostitute. And so if you're going to kick her out, then you're going to have to follow this process so you're going to have to write a piece of paper. I mean, you're going to have to, like, give it to her so that when she goes to the next guy, and she'll have to get remarried to be able to survive in those days. And so when she goes to him, he'll be able to see that this isn't some promiscuous woman, but her husband kicked her out of the house. And that piece of paper gives that woman protection. Number two, man, not only does it give this demand of the man, but it also gives a warning to the man. Man, if you read verses 2, 3, and 4, basically it warns the man and it says, if you do this, man, if you follow through with this, you can't change your mind later. Deuteronomy 24 says, if you're going to write her a certificate of divorce, man, if you're going to kick her out and if she's going to go on to marry somebody else, you can't go get her back. Man, even if she divorces that guy and she's single again, you still can't go get her back because you've defiled her by casting her out of your house and into the bed of another man. And it would be an abomination before the Lord for you to do that. Man, you can't send her out and then change her mind and want her back. You can't swap wives like that. Man, you can't treat women like that. God is saying, I won't let you treat them that way. So Deuteronomy 24, man, it, it does not institute, it does not support, it does not condone divorce. Man, it sees that this is a reality and it attempts to regulate it. Man, it gives those people laws to protect women and to contain the social damage. But man, as I was studying that, it's interesting to see that, man, here you have a law in Deuteronomy that's not God's ideal. Man, it's not necessarily what he wants. It's not his heartbeat. Man, you have people who have hearts that are so hard, and he sees it as a reality, and so he tries to help with the fallout. Man, divorce is a concession, but it's because of our hard hearts. See, back then, it's no different than today. Our culture is divorce happy. And man, we are some cold-hearted people. Man, whenever I have a chance to perform a wedding or even just attend a wedding, man, my favorite part is the exchanging of the wedding vows. And man, when I was younger, man, you know some of those phrases and you're like, okay, yeah, I get that. Like, you just got to say that. Like, that's just what you do at a wedding. But man, when you exchange those vows, you're not just saying that because it's some ritual. But man, you're confessing those things not just to your bride. But here's the thing. Man, you're saying those to one another. You're saying those in front of friends and family. But more so, more importantly, man, you're making a covenant with your heavenly father. And see, today, man, I believe that too often marriage is not seen as a covenant, but instead it's seen as a contract. And see, a contract will say, hey, I'll do what I need to do. You do what you need to do. And if we both do what we are supposed to do, then we can stay in this contract together. But if you fail to do man, then I'm out and I'm leaving. But a covenant is different. Man, the kind of covenant that God makes with his chosen people, the kind of marriage that 
is supposed to be, this type of covenant, man, it says, I promise to stay with you for better or for worse. Man, I promise to not leave even in sickness or in health, man, for richer or poorer, no matter what happens, I'm not going anywhere. But our culture says, man, I'm done. Man, I want to move on to something else. I want to move on to someone else. And, and here's what I want to let you know. That as we kind of unpack this, marriage is meant to be a covenant. Man, it's not a contract. It's meant to be a covenant, but we break it so often because we're selfish, man. We have hard hearts, and hear me out. Man, I'm not pointing a finger. I'm not saying that anybody that's been divorced has a heart issue. I'm saying that every person has a heart issue. Man, I'm not saying the divorced people have the heart issue. I'm saying everybody does. So don't rush to judge the divorcee. Man, there's something broken in all of us. And as we just heard with Matt talking, man, Jesus Christ, he says these words. And last week he said, man, you've heard it said, don't murder somebody. But he raises the bar. He said, well, I'm going to tell you not even to get angry. Don't even hold bitterness against someone. He said, like you heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I'm going to raise the bar and don't even look lustfully at somebody. And here's the thing. Jesus keeps raising the bar. And here, Jesus, he is not abolishing the law. Man, he didn't come to affirm the law either. He came to fulfill the law. And so he's saying to his people, man, I'm not trying to create a people that can even be legislated. I'm trying to create a people that can love and follow my example to love unconditionally. See, Jesus sees that Moses regulated it. Man, he tried to limit it. But Jesus Christ is willing to say, man, I'm here to stand in the gap. I'm here. I came to destroy the sin that is trying to threaten your marriage, and I am here, and I'm willing to release a power in my people to give them the street to keep that bond going, to keep that bond intact. Man, he's there painting a picture of what his love is for his people. See, God didn't come up with the institution of marriage. Man, we got to understand he ordained every single marriage. Not only did he come up with that institution, but man, every individual marriage, man, he ordains. Man, it's a covenant between him. And so if he put it together, man, why do we try to break it apart? Man, if he created it, why do we try to dissolve it? Man, if he united it, why do we try to divide it? Man, if he calls for it to be permanent, Church, why do we try to treat it like it's breakable? Christ, again, he says, man, you fall short. But I come and I live the perfect life. And, and, and I live the life that you couldn't, man. I'm able to come and take on the sin that you have. Man, I'm able to be crucified. I'm able to be put to death, but I beat death and I resurrected. And so my people can have the strength by God's grace to make marriage what it's intended to be. Man, we're left asking, are there places where divorce can happen? And we know the answer. Man, we, we see it. We've lived it out. And see, in Matthew chapter 5, the very next verse in 32, 
it explains that there's situations, there's biblical grounds for divorce. Man, he, he goes on to say like adultery, sexual immorality. Man, there's other parts in the Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Man, it says that if you're a non-believer and you're married to a non-believer and suddenly you become a believer and your spouse chooses to leave you, that's not on you. Man, but, but Jesus Christ, he addresses this because it had began to get out of control. Man, men were writing these divorce certificates, and they were divorcing their wives for crazy things. Man, it's been documented that, man, some uh, rabbinical teaching was saying you were able to divorce your wife if you felt she was lazy, if you didn't feel like she was satisfying you. Man, if, if she had even burnt your food, oh, man, I'd be out of luck because I can't cook in the kitchen, you know. Man, it's the same thing today. Sometimes it seems out of control. Man, in the late 60s, man, we, we get introduced to irreconcilable differences. Man, we get introduced to the no-fault divorce. And so, church family, here's what I want to try to tell you today. The application from these two verses, man, it comes off cold. It comes off like Christ takes this hard stance. And here's the thing. Number one, divorce, it's not God's heartbeat. Man, it's not his ideal. And as Christ followers, man, let's raise the bar on marriage. Man, let's start truly showing people that it's an unbreakable covenant. And as a product of divorce, man, I'm quick to say that I hate it. Man, I hate divorce. But here's the thing. Let's not fall into the trap of, uh, of saying, like, we hate divorce, and then easily falling into the next trap of saying, man, we also we hate the person who has been divorced. We ain't the person who's caught up in a divorce. Man, don't do that. Because Jesus, man, he condemns divorce, but he does not condemn the person. Man, in fact, there's a beautiful message that he continues to share all throughout the New Testament in his ministry. Here's the thing. He says the earth will crumble before he ever divorces this church. Man, there's a beautiful message for every divorcee to hear because Christ says, even though your marriage did not work out, I will never leave you. And I'll never leave my bride. I'll never leave my church. I will never leave you. And so, man, I want to speak to the person who, man, maybe you're in this situation. Maybe you've been in this situation. And here's the thing. There's all different things that can be addressed. Man, if, if you're in an abusive relationship, man, come ask for help. Don't stick around. No, don't. Don't, don't take that. Listen to this. Check this out. Man, there's other things that we could talk about and that we could unpack if we had time. But here's what I want to let you know today. Man, Christ loves you unconditionally. And Christ has his arms stretched out so wide. And man, his, his, his reach is so wide. And he's saying, man, I will never leave you. People have left you. I will never leave you. So run into the arms of the loving father. Man, he's the one who, he'll meet you there. Man, he ran to come get you. Run into the arms that are wide enough not only to accept you, but even accept the one who has hurt you. Man, we got to remember, we got to pray for them too. And here's the thing. Here's what I love about this. Christ, man, he's not just blowing smoke. Christ has the power to keep his word. Man, when we continue to read the scripture, we 
we come on to the next passage, and it's about oaths. In chapter 33, man, it says this. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, man, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is the footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. All right, you can take a breath and take those earmuffs off. We're done talking about sex and marital issues. Um, <laughs> well, there you go. Uh, I've been over there in the on-deck circle for a while, so I'm, I'm gearing up, ready to go. Uh, we, we are going to talk about oaths next. And so I want to get a couple things out of the way really quickly um, before we really dig into this passage. Uh, first, this passage is going to talk about swearing an oath. And some of you guys are thinking, great, this is the passage I get to use to tell my son to stop saying that dirty word. I'm really sorry. Swearing in this word is not anything like that. You can probably find that somewhere else, but that's not where you're going to find it here. So when we're talking about sw swearing here. We're talking about swearing an oath, making a promise. Uh, and then we're going to go through really quickly here, um, and we're going to clear up some Old Testament stuff that maybe makes this a little more confusing for us. Um, and we're going to find out maybe what he's getting at at the heart of this. If you've seen how Jesus has been doing this, he's, he'll say something like you've heard it said, and then he'll kind of unpack it from what they have heard said, and then he'll go a little bit more in depth. And so when he says it, this time you've heard it said, he's referencing Leviticus 19.12, which says this, You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God, I am, and God says his name, which we just have in our Bibles as the Lord. I am the Lord. And so we see that and we think, well, cool, this says really nothing about making oaths in God's name. This is talking about making oaths in all of these other things. And he says not to do that. And I want us to, again, clear up some maybe confusion um, that we have right now that they wouldn't have had back then. And so when... Jesus goes through and he's telling them to not make oaths or not swear oaths by heaven, earth, and Jerusalem. What he's actually doing that um, is uh, he's talking about from sort of the greatest to the least. He uses this kind of language pretty often. It's sort of a, a literary form or sort of a, a unique way he can use words. And so he talks about sort of greatest to least, um, but also we see that in that day, those Jews were using those three phrases, heaven, earth, and Jerusalem, to really be substitutes for God. So a major problem they were having in this instance is they read the law, oh, don't swear by God. Cool, I can do that. What can I swear by, though? Oh, well, I'm going to swear by heaven, or I'm going to swear by earth, or I'm going to swear by Jerusalem. And really all they're doing is finding themselves a loophole around that. They're, they're doing the exact same thing as he told them not to do, just using one different word and thinking they can get themselves out of it. And Jesus is just kind of telling them here, hey, your loopholes aren't good enough. 
your work your workarounds are not feasible because like I'm sure you've paid attention today all of these issues are about the heart and by you just simply using a different word that doesn't change your heart you're doing the exact same thing he told you not to do and then, and then you get to the next one and you say, well, okay, well, well now he's talking about their head. That's n- definitely not a, a, a loophole for God. My, my head is not God by any means. Uh, but, but he kind of gives a different qualifier there. He says, don't swear by your head. Why are you not supposed to swear by your head? Because you don't have any control over your head. You can't make your hairs black or white unless you have some just for men at home, you just, you're not going to be able to do that. A little touch of gray in your back pocket and you just kind of make it happen. But I can't stand here and wish or will my hair to be black or white or blue or brown. Now, nowadays I can change that, but, but really I don't have bodily control over the color of my hair. Some of you have been dyeing your hair for years. We know how old you are. You're not fooling anyone. If my mom's listening to this, you're fooling everybody, mom. You got it. You're doing great. You look beautiful. Um, but, but we recognize this. We don't have control over our hair. So why do we think we can use our own head to give our claims any more weight? And that's really what this is doing. When we're making a promise, when we're making an oath, and we Tack these things on to the end. I swear to God, or I swear to heaven, or I swear on my mama. We're we're trying to make our words have more weight. Because we find ourselves in much the same kind of situation as first century Jews did. Is they were met with an assumption of dishonesty. We find ourselves much in that situation today, right? We, we can't really trust anything we hear politically. We, can't, we, we hear our, our news with a, a dishonest twist. Most of our people and our friends around us, we hear and we're nervous that they're not telling us the full truth. We live our lives with an assumption of dishonesty. And what Jesus is telling them is that you've got to be a people who live life and who exude an assumption of honesty. Our struggle with truth is not new, but we cannot be the people who feed into that assumption of dishonesty. We know people, or maybe we are people, who their words don't mean nearly as much as we would want them to be. Maybe we know people or are people who we get really, really excited about something on the front end, and then over time, our excitement kind of peters out, and we really don't end up doing what we said we were going to do in the first place. Or maybe we know people that if you say, get to band practice at 745, they're at band practice at 807. Where are my band members at? And, and, and you said, yeah, I'll be there. Or, or you say, maybe your husband or wife, then they're, they're going to say, I'm going to leave at 6. And you say, yeah, I can leave at 6. And it's really more like 6.30 or 6.45. This is a huge pet peeve for me. I'm going to spend a second on this because I want this to really sink deep into some of you. 
And so maybe we know people who just aren't good at keeping their promises. Maybe you are that person. Maybe you've made promises, you've made oaths, you've made vows, and you didn't keep them. And, and Jesus is, is really coming down hard on this right here. Eventually he's going to say that, that bearing a false oath is from the evil one. And, and he says that he's going to say, you're going to need to be so honest that I would really just, you don't need to take oaths. You need to be the type of person who doesn't have to take an oath. You should be the type of person that when someone hears you say it the first time, they know you mean it, they know you're going to do it, and they know you're going to fulfill it. I can remember many times in high school, a teacher would say, all right, we're going to turn in our stuff this afternoon. Are you sure you have it? And I'm thinking, oh, I'll, I'll get it to you in 30 minutes or so because I forgot to do it the night before. Um, but I can remember thinking, oh, man, if I had told her, yeah, yeah, I've got it, my words mean nothing. My words begin to lose their weight. And so I feel like I now when I'm telling you the truth, I feel like I have to put some weight on it. I have to put some additional things on it. And so now when I, when I go to someone, I say, hey, can I be honest with you for a second? Well, what does that do? That just says everything I've said before then has not been the truth. We should be people who live our lives where everything we say is the truth. Everything we say, every promise we make, every oath we make, we know we can fulfill. Some of us, that means maybe you've got to stop committing to everything and then not fulfilling. Some of you, that means maybe you've got to start getting a little more serious about the oaths and commitments you've made. And now, Jesus sets this up perfectly. If you've, if you've not been paying attention, each one of these is built upon the last. We look back to what Justin was just talking about. When you are married, you make an oath to your spouse. You make an oath to God. For most of us, if we, if we use traditional vows, you've actually made an oath to the congregation that was there with you. And so if you find yourself breaking those wedding vows, you've now implicated all of those people because we've all made that commitment with you. So these, we see how divorce works into this oaths. And then if you find yourself lusting, well, Jesus has said, that's the same as adultery. Boom, you've broken that marriage vow once again. But even if you're not married, you've broken that vow to God that you've made for purity. As Matt mentioned in Matthew 5, verse 8, in, in part of the Beatitudes, is that, that Jesus is, is blessing those who are pure. And so he is recognizing that as a good state. All of these are building upon one another and they're culminating with what Jesus is saying. Let your heart be true. Let Be a person whose words have weight. You don't have to add anything more to them. Be someone who lives an honest and true life. And when you say something, you mean it. And here's the great part about it all. Is Jesus lived a life exactly like that. He lives a life where he comes 
He says he's going to do something, and he does it. He says, I'm going to come, and I'm going to be your Savior. I'm going to die for you. I'm going to be the sacrifice. And what does he do? He fulfills it. And what has he said he's going to do? He's going to come again. And let me tell you, because he is honest, he will do it. So we have a model, but we also, within that model, we see our forgiveness if we are people who fall into this. Because what was his promise? He will come to forgive. If you find yourself in that position this morning, he has come to forgive. Jesus is one who has said he will do it, he did it, and he will do it. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, we are so thankful to to be followers of one who keeps his promise. We know we can trust what you say because you said it. Father, as as we seek to be people who are living lives that are glorifying to you, as we seek to be people who, who are striving hard after you, let us seek our model in you and not in any other person. Father, for those who are thinking about divorce, Father, we pray that you would soften their hearts, that you would, you would show them your desire, that you would, you would be there for them. Father, for those who, who struggle with lustful thoughts, we pray that you would heal our hearts as only you can do. With our power, we will fail every time. For all of us in here today, I love what Justin said, is that we all have this sin problem. We all have this at us. It's not one type of people or one group of people who struggle. It is all of us. And so we know that we can seek you you for forgiveness because you have promised us that. It's in your wonderful name we pray. Amen.